to pray as we start. Our Father, we want to thank and praise you that you are a good God who loves to bless, that you reign supreme and that your plans will come to fruition. And we want to praise you that you've chosen to bring us in on the inside of your plan, to reveal it to us, to include us in it, and to give us a part to play in it. And we want to pray that as we um, continue this overview this morning, that we would have your help to understand your word, and that in deep and profound ways you would shape our thinking and our um, affections, our loves, and our plans, and our lives in the light of what you are doing in the world. So be with us, please, by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let me just say up front, I think we've got... Oh, now Bibles. Yeah, so there's boxes of Bibles at the back. Uh... I mean, it's better, but it's entirely up to it's entirely up to uh, people which Bibles they have. Um, if you want an ESV, uh, shove up a hand, and uh, Scott will give you one. Thank you very much. I feel like this is a good moment for Dan to repeat his lost property notice because we we haven't done that for a few minutes. Dan, what are you, you've got a book. There's a couple of handouts. If you've lost your Bible overview handout, the reason that Matty didn't trust you to look after it, but some of you managed to lose it anyway, that's uh, awkward. Dan is going to be devastated. He's got the whole day. So you need to be on uh, page about six, I think, of the overview handout. Uh, I think we've got the uh, most difficult uh, kind of got to concentrate, got to get your heads in the game uh, work to do this morning in the overview. I think we're kind of vaguely familiar with the idea of creation. Uh, We're vaguely familiar with the idea of Jesus. This chunk of the Bible that we're looking at this morning is probably the bit with which most of us are least familiar. Uh, and therefore it's just going to be a bit of uh, graft for us to keep up with it and to to track along. Therefore, I've put a bit more of the detail of what I'm going to say on the handout so that um, you've got it for reference, and hopefully that will mean less scribbling and more understanding. But just to recap what we're doing, we're thinking really about the, the story of God, what, how, the way that God has chosen to reveal himself to us, the purpose that God has for the universe, that he, cho- he has chosen, as uh, I was praying before, to reveal to us. And we started yesterday by discovering that our God is the God, that he is the creator of everything. Like, different people live for different things, different gods we can call them. Some explicitly call them gods, others they're just idols, but they're the things that they're living for. We love and live for Uh, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what we discovered yesterday is that he is the creator of everything, Uh, that he is good, that he loves to bless, and that he wants us to know him. And we discovered that he has a plan for the world, and I'm going to ask you to recap for me what it is. uh, Someone give me a definition of kingdom without looking at your sheet. Definition of God's kingdom. So there's lots of ways you can understand the big story of the Bible, but this is the one we're looking at this time. Go on, Margaret. Loving it. So God's people living in God's place, under God's rule, and experiencing God's blessing. It's going to get harder now. This You should always answer the first question. We're going to try and remember the eight P's that we're, we're tracking our way through. You're not, Millie, stop cheating. Uh, uh, we're trying to remember the eight P's that we're using to kind of go through the storyline of the Bible. So in creation, we get the first P, of, which is God's kingdom is patterned. Thank you very much. These P's are entirely irrelevant, but they, they will help in that they're not words that come from the Bible itself, but I think they'll help you to track through the story. What happens in Genesis 3? Perishes, yep, everything goes pear-shaped. Well, you should maybe, that should be the P, shouldn't it? Uh, everything goes pear-shaped in Genesis 3. Genesis 11, 
12 rather, that's awkward. Uh, Genesis 12 is the big promise. Okay, so that's the moment that God says to Abraham, this is what I'm going to do in the world. This has been God's plan since before the beginning of creation. It's not like he started in the garden, it all went wrong, and so he was like, oh, let me see if I can put it right. Ever since, before the beginning of the foundation of the world, it has been his plan that everything would work this way. So there's the promise. It then gets what in the life of Israel? Portrayed when I cursed he. Oh, it's a, someone told me yesterday it's partially fulfilled in the life of uh, Israel. That's great. Then uh, it all goes wrong again, because as we're going to discover, they don't do a very good job. Uh, and so what happens next? We haven't done this yet, so this, you'd have really been concentrating. What do the prophets do? They prophesy. Well done. So that's the, that's the P. Uh, and then we're going to get to Jesus. What happens? The kingdom is what in Jesus? Present. Kirsty, she's so good, isn't she? <laughs> Someone make her a women's worker. This is wonderful. So the, it's present in Jesus. What happens in the church? The kingdom is... Oh, do we have a wrong answer? That's all good. Uh, we haven't done it yet, so there's no reason you should know. It's preached, it's proclaimed, yes. And then what happens in the new creation? Perfected. Okay, so there's the big storyline of the Bible that we're trying to work our way through. Yesterday we looked at the pattern, we looked at everything going pear-shaped, we looked at the promise, and we began looking at uh, God's kingdom being portrayed or partially fulfilled in history. And we focused our uh, thoughts on God's people initially. If you're at the top of page six, you'll now see that we're going to begin to think about God's rule and blessing. And my hope, we'll see how we go, my hope is that we're going to get to Jesus before lunch. We may not, but we'll see, we'll see how we go. So we're thinking about God's plan to gather his people, to gather a people to himself in his special place and that they will live under his rule and that they will experience his blessing. So now we're zooming in on God's rule and blessing. And once God had rescued his people from Egypt, again, he wanted what was good for them. And because he wanted what was good for them, because he wanted them to experience his blessing, because he wanted them to thrive and to be the people that they'd been made to be, uh, he gave them his law, his word, as a good rule and guide for their life. So if you're in the Bible, let's turn to Exodus 19. And you'll know one of the big moments of history. We're not going to spend too long on this because uh, we just had a series on the Ten Commandments. So we spent a lot of time thinking about this. But just here's how it fits in. Here's God's people. We're now wandering around. How are we going to live? And God's law is to say, now that I've saved you, this is what it's going to look like to live as my people. I want you to live under my rule. You can see God's recreating, if you like, what Eden was like. There were God's people, Adam and Eve. They were living under his rule, the rule of his word. It all went wrong. God is recreating that situation now as his people. He's going to take them to the land. We'll see that in a second. Here's a united people of God who should be obeying the word of God. So he gives them his good law. Um, the, uh, chapter 20, verse 1, God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, and we know from the New Testament that God's law is holy and righteous and good. We thought in, the, in our uh, Ten Commandments series how it reveals, it points up to reveals God's character to us. It also points inside to show us our sin and show us how we fall short of God's standards. It points forward to Jesus, as we'll see, but it also points down to the nitty-gritty of life. And that was what was in particular going on here. As it revealed God's character to them, so it taught them how to live as his saved and redeemed people. And the people's response to God's law was going to have enormous consequences for their relationship with God. Um, let me read from chapter 19, verses 4 to 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In other words, I've already brought you to me. You're saved. It is a done deal. Now, therefore, 
if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words, Moses, that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So you can see there's a sense in which the relationship is 100% secure. It's a done deal. They've been saved. But you can see, too, that their enjoyment of and good experience of their relationship with God is going to be dependent upon their obedience to his law. Now, therefore, verse 5, if you will indeed obey and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. So there's elements of it that are unconditional. And there's elements of it that are conditional upon uh, their obedience. And as you read Deuteronomy 28, as you read Leviticus 26, whenever the law is given or or explained in detail, those consequences are spelt out to the people of Israel. Here is a good law that that will be a means of blessing and life for you. And I want you to obey it because it's good for you. But if you don't, Rather than being blessed, you, even though you're my saved people, Israel, will experience my curse. And ultimately, he warns them, even before they get into the land that he's going to give them, if you don't obey my law, you'll end up being kicked out of the land as the penalty, in just the same way that Adam and Eve were banished from the good land of Eden before it. And the people sign up to that. This is the ter- these are the terms of the covenant that they uh, have with God, the, the perfect contractual relationship that they have with God. And the people sign up to it and they say, absolutely, we want to do what you have told us. So if you flick over the pages 21, 22, you'll see Exodus 21, 22, 23, you'll see a bit more detail of the law. And then in chapter 24, verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all of the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Um, goes on to verse 7, I think it is. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will be obedient So this is a big moment. God has said, here is how I'm going to rule over you. And they're saying, we love it. We're going to obey everything that you've said. We know that you know what is best for us. You've proven that by saving us. Now we're going to live in obedience to you. But it doesn't last very long. As you flick over again, you may know that by the time Moses is coming down from the mountain in Exodus chapter 32, they've built a golden calf and they are worshipping it. And so even before they've got started as a nation, we're being reminded that the, the big problem of sin hasn't been solved yet. If God's purpose for the universe, his people in his place under his rule and enjoying his blessing, is going to be dependent forever on the obedience of his people, then we're going to be stuffed because they've mucked it up Already, Once again, God could destroy them, but he doesn't. Uh, Instead, in his mercy, he gives them a sacrificial system uh, and says, here I will provide a way for your sins to be forgiven so that I know you're not going to keep my law, but if you keep depending on me, I'm going to forgive you. Bring these sacrifices at these times as a sin offering, as a burnt offering, lots of other offerings as well. But bring these sacrifices, and that will be the means by which our relationship is maintained while you continue to disobey me. Uh, But the sacrificial system itself clearly isn't uh, a final solution. Just to cheat a bit, flick on to Hebrews chapter 10 with me, please. And you'll see that on the one hand, the sacrificial system was God's gracious means by which he uh, maintained relationship with his people. But chapter 10, uh, verse 3 of Hebrews, in in our Bibles, it's page 1006. I don't know about the, the BAPO ones, but 1006. In these sacrifices, Hebrews 10, verse 3, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So um, I think of the, I don't know if you've got any kind of, you'll know people who have a a very long-term medical condition. 
where they have to take drugs every day to uh, keep the, the condition at bay. And on the one hand, they're a wonderful thing because they ensure that they can carry on living uh, a, a relatively normal life. But on the other hand, every time they're taking their pills, they're a reminder of the problem. You get up in the morning, you've got to take your pills because if you don't, things go wrong. And the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, tiny bit like that, it enabled the people to continue living in relationship with God, but at the same time it just said, the problem hasn't gone away, the problem hasn't gone away, the problem hasn't gone away, there's still a sin problem, there's still a sin problem. Nevertheless, uh, back in Exodus, the rule of God uh, was a wonderful thing. If they'd obeyed the law, they would have enjoyed his blessing. So, uh, the, God rules over his people through his word. And we'll see that theme all the way through the Bible. How did God rule over his people in Eden? Answer through his word. How did he, and went wrong when they disobeyed his word? How was he going to rule over his people Israel? Answer through his word. Went wrong when they disobeyed God's word. What happens in the life of Jesus? Here is someone who perfectly obeys God's word. What's meant to happen in the church is that the word of God is re-emplaced. I know that's not a word, but it should be. Is re-emplaced at the very center of the people of God. Here is a people who again delight to obey God's word. What will be happening in the new creation? will be living in obedience to God's word perfectly. And as such, will enjoy his blessing. So the blessing came as they lived in obedience to the word, but back on page seven, God also chose to bless his people with his presence with them in the tabernacle. And if you're reading through Exodus, you'd have got the big story of um, their rescue from Egypt in chapters 1 to 18. You'd see the giving of the law in chapters 19 to 24. And then you'd see all of chapters 25 to 40 pretty much are taken up with the tabernacle. 25 to 31, they're given the design. You get the, uh, the bit with the golden calf, 32 to 34, where God reveals his character again. Uh, and then 35 to 40, they actually build the tabernacle. But the purpose of the tabernacle, we just need to register together. So if you flick to Exodus chapter 25, page 65 in our Bibles and verse 8. Uh, the commentator Dale Ralph Davis, um, uh, I had him do some talks on, on Exodus. My American accent's not very good, as you know. Th this isn't being recorded, I think, is it? Oh, it is. Uh, in which case, I shall do my American accent very badly for posterity, which is a wonderful thing. He said, when you get to Exodus 25, verse 8, if you're reading through Exodus, you've got to snag your pants on this verse, or you're going you're gonna to miss everything, okay? So we're going to snag our pants together on Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8. So God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is God's purpose once again. This is how he is going to bless his people. He's going to dwell in their midst. And you might be thinking, how, and this sounds a lot like the Garden of Eden, where God would walk around with Adam in the cool of the day and that they could relate perfectly to one another. And that's been ruined. They've been banished from Eden. But here is a little picture of God's ultimate purpose again. God present with his people in the midst of them to bless them, uh, to bless them and to guide them. Now, this is a, a temporary mobile tent, the tabernacle. Later, it gets replaced by the temple, the bricks and mortar temple that Solomon would build, where God would dwell permanently among his people. But that the purpose is the same. Uh, and I put on the bottom of the sheet there three little ways that it's helpful for us to think of the, the temple. One, it's a throne room. This is where God rules over his people, the place where his law is kept. God rules over his people through his word and the teaching of his word, which happened in the temple. Second, it's a house. Uh, God dwells in their midst. And third, it's an altar. It's the place where forgiveness is provided for the people. So this tabernacle is of huge significance. It's God saying, I know you keep mucking up, but I want to be right in the midst of your community to bless you. That's my ultimate purpose 
for you and for the world. Over the page. So we've done. We're in God's kingdom being portrayed in, the, in history, the partial fulfillment of the promise, if you like. We've thought about people. God rescued them. We've thought about God's rule and blessing. By the time we get to the book of Joshua, the major focus now becomes the land. But the story so far, you'll remember that God had promised uh, Abraham that he would show him a land. You'll remember that with them. Um, If you know the story, they ended up in Egypt. There was this big famine. Joseph and all of that stuff happened over in Egypt. That's where the people have been for far too long, 400 years. God saved them out of Egypt, but they're not yet in the land. You're just going to do a bit of work. I know it's a bit harder. You can't really turn your pews to face each other in the same way. But could you just um, scan your eyes over numbers for me, please? Chapters 13 and 14. You won't need to kind of read it all and study it all in super, super detail. But page 121 and page 122, can you just have a look at the, the thing on the, the sheet? So they, they get very, very close to the land and they're just about to go in. And then numbers 13 and 14 happen. And again, it's just important for us to register that this happened. So a couple of minutes where you are, scan over those chapters. Why do the people not get into the promised land immediately? Then I'd love you to think about how does the rest of the Bible use their example? And I've given some sheet, uh, some passages on the sheet that you can just scan your eyes over again. And then to answer the question, I'd love you to get onto this one. What lessons does God have for us today from their example? Okay. So I'm going to give you 10 minutes, but you're going to have to go quickly. All right. So here we go. 11 o'clock. So why do the people not get into the promised land immediately? They were scared. That's one way of putting it. Any advance on they were scared? Thank you. Thank you. It's too early in the morning for you. (laughs) Thank you. They were terrified. Why were they terrified? Right, so I think that's the key, isn't it? So it's what's going on in their heart underneath. The symptom, if you like, their emotion was, was terror, was fear. They were scared. They didn't like what the, was in front of them. But the thing that's going on in their heart at that, mom- at that moment is God has told us to do something. And again, we don't really trust that he is good and big enough that he's telling us the right thing to do and will help us to do it. We're going to think that we can better serve our own interests by turning away from what God has said and setting the course of our life ourselves. Again, it's a lot like what was going on with Adam and Eve, isn't it? And a lot like what goes on in us all of the time. So it is that thing. It's a vertical thing. It's not just these people are scared. These people are scary. It's that God isn't big enough or good enough for us to trust him to uh, fulfill his plan in the way that he's told us to. So how does the rest of the Bible use their example? Middle column. Thank you. Um, So it does say that we are like them in the sense that they've been saved but they're not yet in the place of God's ultimate rest and we have been saved through Jesus but we're not yet in the place of ultimate rest of the new creation so they were in the wilderness and we're effectively living in the wilderness saved and secure in our relationship with God but not yet in the new creation and they are an example for us a negative example about how not to relate to God while we're living in the wilderness. And how specifically does that then apply to us and help us, and what does God say to us today through that? What's it going to look like for us to learn from their example? Right. Thank you. So the, the root thing that they were not doing 
or the, the root thing that they were doing was failing to listen to God's voice. They were listening instead to their own emotions, really, uh, and to worldly wisdom, which it says they're big and scary, so don't fight them. Uh, they were failing to listen to God's voice. And the lesson to us today is listen to his voice. Don't harden your heart to it. Don't, think, don't listen to your emotions and your feelings above the voice of God. Don't listen to worldly wisdom above the voice of God. Don't harden your heart like they did. There's still a rest to come. The new creation is wonderful. Can't wait to get there. But the life of faith in the wilderness is the life of humbly listening to God's word. And Hebrews is saying, that's why you need one another. That's why you need a church. That's why you can't be a solo Christian. Uh, That's why when you're leaving here, far bigger decision than which job you do is where you're going to go to church. Because you're going to need people around you who are going to help you to listen to the word of God and to uh, put it into practice in your life. Not just hearers, but doers also. Okay, so people, rule and blessing, land. They got close. It all went wrong. Big lessons for us from that. Finally, in the book of Joshua, they get into the land. So flick to Joshua with me, please. Uh, Either the last book of the Hexateuch or the first book of the rest of the next bit of the Bible, depending on which way you look at it. Page 178. So the whole of Deuteronomy, by the way, is set on the edge of the land. They've done the wilderness stuff. They're there at the edge of the land. And the law is uh, repeated, recapitulated, re-preached to the people of God, just as they're about to go into the land. And again, they're told at the end, choose life. Go the right way. Listen to God and you'll experience his blessing. And if you don't, you'll experience his curse. So they're just there. They've done the wilderness thing. And it's three big sermons on the edge of the promised land. Now uh, they are about to go in. So let's start at um, Joshua 1. I'll read from verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I won't leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. So it's the repeat of God's promise. I said I would give you a land. You mucked up, and so that entire generation, with the exception of two people, Caleb and Joshua, died in the wilderness. A new generation has arisen, and they will be allowed to enter the land, and that's what I'm going to do now. I've already given you the land in one sense. The the legal title to the land has already been given to them as a gift from God. But now they're going to need to take physical possession of the land and drive out the peoples of the land as an act of God's judgment upon them. And the book of Joshua is the story of how that happens. Uh, it breaks into four parts, and um, I've put them on the sheet there. The, the words in italics uh, uh, tell you the section markers uh, in the book of Joshua, and they are... Um, repeated regularly within those chapters. I can't remember the exact number of repetitions for each of them, but two to four is all about the Israelites going up into the land. Five to 12 is all about them taking the land. Then they divide the land and then in the land they serve the Lord. And so the book ends with this repeat, if you like, of Sinai. God's covenant is renewed And everybody is very, very happy. The challenge at the end of Joshua is, now that you're in the land, are you going to serve? Are you going to serve? Are you going to serve? Joshua says, as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. Are you going to serve the Lord as well? And a bit like at Sinai, all the people say, yes, we're going to do everything that God has commanded. And so chapter 21, verse 45, page 196, is a really, really happy moment in the life of Israel. Chapter 21, verse 45. Not one word 
of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. So everything that God's been promising is now happening. They are a great nation. They are in the land that God had promised to give to them. They have the promise of his blessing if they obey the Lord. And uh, if you flick over the page to 198, chapter 24, the book ends, Moses saying to, uh, sorry, Joshua saying to the people, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity, 2414, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. They said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It's the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us all in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. He's done everything. He's kept his word. So we are going to do as he said. And if they'd done it, Everyone would have lived happily ever after. But even in Joshua, it's a, it's a kind of a high moment in the, the history of Israel and God's purposes in the world, God's people in God's place, pledging to live under God's rule and uh, wanting to experience his blessing. But even in Joshua, there's a disturbing trend. And you can check out the references later. But God had said, drive out all of the nations, drive them all out. Because if you don't, they're going to be a snare to you. You'll think you can just live happily among them, but you'll end up marrying their daughters and you'll end up serving their gods. So don't let them survive. Drive them all out. That's how important it is for my people to be pure. And they didn't do it. They did it sometimes and they didn't do it at other times. And so this kind of inbuilt thorn in the side of Israel was already there by the end of Joshua. Then we flick over the page to page 9 on the handout or to page... Uh, 200 in my Bible, and we get to the book of Judges. And this is where everything starts to go wrong all over again. Again, if we're thinking of, of Canaan as being a bit like Eden, God's people living in God's place under God's rule and blessing, then this is a bit like another fall, a bit like it. Um, because there, it's not obviously absolutely perfect in Canaan at the start, but everything starts to go wrong again. And the story of Judges, we preached through it a while ago, you may have heard some of those if you were around, is the story of everything going wrong in Israel. At the the end of Joshua, um, we saw that God was keeping all of his promises and everyone was pledging to do everything that God had commanded. But by the end of uh, Judges, if you flick to page 221, the very final verse in Judges... God says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And what happens through judges? There's um, the stories of all of the different judges. That cycle that I've put on the sheet there is repeated. It's identified for us in um, 11 to 16. Let me just read those in chapter 2. Sorry to jump around pages, but back on page 201. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them, sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they didn't listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bound down to them. They soon turned away. So you'll see, even there, the cycle is beginning to repeat. Things are going well. They're serving the Lord. Then they start serving idols. God raises up enemies to punish them. They cry out eventually and ask for help. It doesn't seem to be a cry of repentance, just of distress. God raises up a, a judge, a deliverer to rescue them. 
and it goes well for the lifetime of that judge and then they forget what they've been told and they start serving idols once again and so the cycle is repeated and it's like this downhill spiral all the way through judges everything had been sounded as though it was going to be so good in the land this was our hope this is the fulfillment of all of god's promises and again the problem of sin undoes all of the good and we end the book with the people doing uh getting progressively worse and everyone doing what was right in his own eyes uh, that's when the book of ruth is set that we're told about and that we're hearing about on sunday evenings at the moment in the days of the judges everything's awful we're reminded god's still at work god's still got a plan of salvation and redemption it's still going to be wonderful but right now it looks awful the question though that judges raises just at the end there in those days there was no king in israel is what if israel had a king would things get better uh, one of the problems with judges is that uh, the parents weren't very good at telling the kids how they should live uh, they didn't tell them the stories of God in the way that they should have done. And so generations grew up uh, each time who didn't know anything. If we had kind of like a permanent monarchy that, uh, where it would be the king's job to lead the people and to tell them how to live, would that solve the problem? That's one of the questions raised by judges. And then the rest of the historical books of the uh, Old Testament tell us that the answer is no. Not even a king is going to solve the problem. The, the, the Bible's a, a bit um, ambivalent about the, the establishment of, the, the, of a king in Israel. On the one hand, having a king is not a bad thing. Uh, back in Deuteronomy 17, long before they got into the land, God made provision and gave laws about the, the behavior that the king should have. So it can't be an entirely bad thing for the people to have a king. But when they ask for a king, they ask for a king for the wrong reasons. And God tells them that they're getting it wrong. So can we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8? That's the next historical book after Ruth. Um, some stuff goes on at the start of 1 Samuel that we won't go into for now. But in 1 Samuel 8, after... Um, So chapters 4 through 7 of Samuel are like a big V. Everything goes horribly wrong, and then God acts without anyone to solve the problem, and everything gets better again. And they put up a stone, Ebenezer, the stone of help. Uh, thus far, God has helped us, 1 Samuel 7, verse 12. Then we get to chapter 8, and the people come up with a plan to solve the problem so that they never again experience the bad stuff. And their uh, desire is expressed in chapter 8 and you'll see the heading um, Samuel has been a prophet uh, in the land and then chapter 4 uh, sorry verse 4 of chapter 8 all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said behold you're old and uh, it sounds like a staff meeting and people talking to me uh, behold you're old and your sons don't walk in your ways now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations you get that Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And, the Lord, and Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. So uh, he said, they demand a king, and God says, let them have a king, but their motives are wrong. Two things are driving them. I've put them on the sheet. Uh, chapter 8, verse 7, they are rejecting the king that they already have. They're saying, we want a human to rule us and to guarantee our future after God has said, I am your king and I will guarantee your future. So it is a direct rejection of God's rule in their life. And then second, their desire is to be like the nation. So chapter 8, verse 20, uh, they say, There shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. In other words, they've got one, so we want one, 
And then our future will be secure. Because again, they are trusting in themselves and in human ideas as the thing that guarantees their future. Because they don't believe that God is good enough and big enough to achieve his purposes in the way that he said that he's going to. So, the rest of uh, 1 Samuel is the story of two kings. The first is Saul. He looks really, really impressive. But the big deal about Saul is that he is the people's choice. He is not God's choice. Uh, God, uh, so he looks impressive. He's anointed as king. But he disobeys God. And so the kingdom is taken from him. Let's just see that in chapter... Th- Which bit shall we read? Do, 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 do. Let's just look at it in chapter 13, verse 14. So um, Saul is a, a bad boy. He takes it to himself to do something that he shouldn't have done. And so having given him the, the kingdom... Uh, chapter 13 verse 14 God says to Saul but now your kingdom shall not continue the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you so again here's the root of the problem God has given his rule to his king his commands the king is turning away not keeping the commands And so this time there are negative consequences for the whole nation because when the king goes astray, the people suffer with him. David rocks up on the scene and uh, we know that he's the man after God's heart. He's the man of God's purpose. That's not saying that David himself is perfect. It's saying that he's after the plan and intention, that he is the one that God intends to be the the king. Uh, And he is anointed as the new king. He is God's choice. And there are loads and loads of uh, little foreshadowings of Jesus as we see, uh, uh, as we read about David in 1 Samuel. This is the king that God wants over his people. So he's anointed, he's successful in battle, he establishes the kingdom. And we think, great, this is finally going to be the way that everything uh, good happens. But, 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 once again... As we know, famously, there's the whole Bathsheba thing, there's murder, and uh, David ends up being rebuked. So David is not the answer to the problem either. Nevertheless, God makes for David, uh, to David, an amazing promise. And we're just going to zero in on this for a little bit. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, page 259. Samuel chapter 7, and I'm going to read uh, verses 12 to 16. God to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, uh, the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, uh, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. So here's the promise. Uh, God doesn't yet have a permanent house. David, your son is going to be the one who builds the temple. Um, The son of David will rule forever. You'll see that in the verses there. And the son of David will also be known as the son of God. So at the top of page 10, I've put it in the Uh, in a box there just for ease you'll see again it sounds a lot like the promise to Abraham they were told they were going to be a great nation and now we're told that one of David's line will receive the kingdom uh, and establish it forever 
We were told they would live in the place of, uh, in the land of Canaan. And now we're told God will be present in the temple at Jerusalem, where he will dwell permanently among them. We were told that God will bless them and the whole world. And now David is told that his son, the son of God, will rule over God's people forever. So what's going on is that God is gradually revealing more and more about how the effects of the curse are going to be reversed. Uh, We saw in Genesis 3 the promise of one who would crush the head of the serpent, one who would banish evil from the world forever uh, and conquer it. We are told of the son of Abraham, through whom all of the nations of the world would be blessed. And now we're told of a son of David, who's also the son of God, who is going to rule forever over all people. Okay, so that is how we are charting so far uh, in our journey from Judges to Chronicles. Anybody got any comments or questions just at this stage? Uh, There's a bit more that we need to do before coffee So I'm going to crack on, but I'm aware I've been going for a while without giving you anything to do. Um, So anybody got any comments or questions? Observations? Anybody awake? Please. Yep. Yes. I do. Um, That's a slightly longer answer, but in part I think the answer would be to show the people that God's way is the right way. Um, And to try and train the people to see the kind of king that God wants. And it's not the king who is going to be big and strong and look really impressive in the eyes of the world, it's going to be an unlikely king who will conquer not by spears and might, but by living in obedient trust to the Lord. So the book of 1 Samuel generally is saying God is the king and his purposes will succeed, not in a worldly way, but through his godly, unlikely king. And so we're being told, so eight to, chapters 8 to 14 are all, this is what Jesus isn't like, because that's not the way that God's going to achieve it. And chapters 15 to 31 are all, this is what Jesus is like, not perfectly, but lots of pictures of it, because this is how God is going to achieve his purpose. And there is a line at the end of, now I get points if I can find it, which I'm not going to be able to do. So in chapter 17, verse 47, there's, kind of, there's a little verse that really summarizes the whole of the book of 1 Samuel. Um, why is God giving victory to David, the unlikely David, the shepherd boy with his little sling over Goliath? Answer, so that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. So God's purpose, negatively in Saul and positively through David, is to say God is going to save, but not through military and worldly might. He's actually going to save through a weak-looking king, um, through Jesus. Coolio. So, go on, Aaron. Yeah, good question. Um, A judge is really a deliverer. Um, that's the, the word. He, so he does kind of provide judgments, but he's not permanently anointed as the ruler and leader of God's people. Uh, and there's no dynastic succession in that sense. Brilliant question. Normally it's by going and beating up the baddies. Um, so, uh, and then the people go, oh, wow, you're really cool. Um, and, uh, I mean, again, the judges are imperfect and they become more and more imperfect as you go through the book of Judges. But there's some brilliant stories of what God does 
uh, and how God works through a judge. So you get Ehud with his, um, and Eglon, the um, guy who's uh, got enormous rolls of fat. Uh, And uh, uh, Eglon goes up with his secret sword and and says, I've got a a secret message from the Lord for you. And so he sends out all of his um, attendants and... uh, uh, Eglon, Ehud shoves the sword in, it gets the folds of the fat enclosed around it and it gets hidden and then um, uh, you can read the story. In, uh, in Judges 3 Ehud runs away um, but because Eglon is dead and he's uh, locked in the toilet and um, everyone thinks he's just taking too long in there but really he's dead and by the time uh, and then Eglon's, uh, Ehud has escaped. So there are loads of kind of just great stories of how God works through the deliverer to remove the ones who are oppressing his people. That's the key. Um, deliverance in the sense of you can't be free if you've got a baddie ruling over you and exploiting you. So God takes out the baddie through the deliverer. Samson, all of that. Um, but not um, none of them do it perfectly. And I, I said it's kind of a, there's a repeated cycle. It's actually, it's a, a repeated cycle in a downhill direction. So hence a negative spiral. The judges become more and more corrupt as you go. The problems become more and more uh, serious in, in Israel. The last four or five chapters, we, had, we preached them a couple of years ago. Four or five chapters of judges are just disgusting uh, of how bad life in Israel is. One person said, I think I may never come to church again because I cannot believe that that stuff is in the, is in the Bible. It's just horrible. Um, uh, but that's the point. God is saying, this is how bad it gets when people are doing what's right in their own eyes and ignoring, ignoring God. Should we move on? Uh, we'll do a bit and then we'll have coffee at the right time. So, remember where we are? God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. We're trying to work out whether a king is going to solve the problem. Saul didn't. David didn't. How about Solomon? Is he going to uh, manage it? And he is the, the main character in one king's uh, following. And it all starts off so well. If you want to read some of the kind of high, high points of Israel's history, then uh, you can get it in the first chapters of one king's. So let me just read uh, a few verses as a flavor. Start at um, 1 Kings 4, page 283, and I'm going to read a chunk that starts at verse 20. Okay, prize for who gets the echo in verse 20. Where's that verse from? Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. Pardon? Right, so that was the promise to Abraham. Back, oh, actually, I put it on the sheet. That's not very helpful, is it? So, <laughs> so Genesis twenty-two seventeen. That's where that promise was made to Abraham. There'll be as many as the, your descendants, as many as the stars of the sky, but also as many as the sand on the seashore. So we're reading this and we're thinking, "Wow, this is great! God's promises are being fulfilled, and they are." Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all of the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fat and fowl. For he had dominion over all of the region uh, west of the Euphrates, from Tiphash to Gaza, over all of the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Uh, and those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. 
Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all of the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite and Hermon, Calcol and Dada, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And uh, people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom. So things are going well. There's uh, the languages of abundance, of security. Um, it's, again, it's a bit like Genesis 1, 28, isn't it? Here's, here's a king who's ruling over the world, and he understands all of the different things that God had made, the birds and the beasts and the reptiles, so well that he's able to explain how life should be to everybody around. And all of the nations are coming to find out all about it. So it is the high point. Solomon, chapter 6, builds the temple. And uh, check out eight, uh, chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. So the temple's built, the ark comes in, and when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So you've got a king who knows God and is walking in his ways and has God's wisdom poured out upon him lavishly and the people are flourishing and they've got security and everybody's coming flocking. There's abundance, there's blessing everywhere. God is dwelling permanently in the midst of the people. Things are as good as they're going to get. So you can see that the promise to Abraham looks as though it's being fulfilled. The promise to David looks as though it's being fulfilled but Solomon doesn't crush the head of the serpent or doesn't kill sin. Instead, he gives into it. Remember, everything depends on the king's obedience to God. So 1 Kings 6, verses 11 to 13. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you're building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will not forsake my people Israel. So everything depends on the obedience of the king. Just like we saw at Sinai, here you are my saved people, and if you obey, you'll have all of my blessing. Now it's zoomed in on the king. You are my king, and if you obey everything that I'm commanding, again, I won't forsake my people. I will bless them, and everything will be great. But um, Deuteronomy 17 had said the king shouldn't have loads of horses. And uh, we were just reading he had thousands of them. The king had said that uh, Deuteronomy 17 had said that the king shouldn't have loads of gold and silver. And uh, chapter 10, verse 14. The weight of gold that came, out of Solomon, that came to Solomon one year was 666 talents of gold beside that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchant and from all the kings of the west and the governors of Israel. So he's amassing horses, he's amassing money. The king, Deuteronomy had said that the king shouldn't have lots of wives. Chapter 11, verse 1, now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines. His wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and didn't wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. 
Then Solomon built a high place from Chemosh, the abomination of, of Moab, and from Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all of his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. So everything is going to be dependent upon the obedience of the king, and the king is getting it badly wrong. What does God do? Uh, flick to page 11 on the handout if you haven't yet. In fact, could you flick on a, a couple of pages to 15 in the handout, just for a second, and just see a timeline that goes on? Again, we're just about to get to a key moment in the history of Israel, and uh, we're going to stop for coffee after this. Okay, so we've been tracking the, the timeline of the history of the Old Testament through, we've seen Moses, we've entered the land, we've had the judges, we've had the monarchy, we've had Solomon and the building of the temple. This moment where Solomon's heart gets turned away from the Lord and he chases after other gods and starts sacrificing to them, uh, marks a split or heralds a split in the people of God. So at this moment, as we're just about to read, and it's easiest to see it on the picture, uh, 931 BC, give or take, is where the people of God, the 12 tribes of God, get split into two nations. You know, sometimes when you're reading the Bible, you're reading about Israel, and sometimes you're reading about Judah. Up until now, they've all been one people, the people of Israel. But now they split into two, they are split by God as punishment on Solomon into two uh, kingdoms. Uh, Come back to page 11, and uh, we'll just track that through. So let me read um, chapter 11 of 1 Kings, verses 9 to 13. Back on page 292, page 11 of the handout. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he shouldn't go after other gods. See again, the word of God ignored by the king of God. And problems come. Therefore, uh, but he didn't keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I won't do it in your days, but I'll tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all of the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, whom I have chosen. So uh, the split happens. Things are never the same again in the history of Israel from this moment on. We're now definitely on the downhill slope. The, the high, high days under in the early part of Solomon's reign go. Uh, the, we're split into two. Israel in the north consists of ten tribes uh, and is ruled initially by Jeroboam. Judah in the south has just two tribes. Um, and most of the story of the Bible from here on in zooms in on Judah. Um, but we'll just deal with the northern kingdom first. It's ruled entirely by bad kings, as you read through. Um, It gets conquered by Assyria in 722 BC, and uh, they go into exile first. Um, So 2 Kings 17. Let me just read from verse... Six, in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on Haber, the, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And I'm not going to read 7 to 18, but you can see the heading that tells you it all. Exile because of idolatry. This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. They walked in the customs of the nations, they worshipped the gods of the nations, and so they suffered the curse of the covenant, just as God had promised, way back in Exodus 19, way back uh, in Deuteronomy 28. If you obey me, you'll have my blessing. If you don't, you'll be cursed, and you'll be driven out of the land. Uh, Then we move to Judah. 
mostly bad kings. There's a couple of goodies that get us excited again. Uh, people like Josiah. Um, Assyria come to try and conquer them. This is the early chapters of Isaiah. We read about this. Um, the Assyrian uh, army eventually fails. Um, there's a big siege, but they eventually fail. But then come the Babylonians, uh, and they do uh, conquer Israel, uh, conquer Judah rather, and send them into exile as well. In 597, the temple is plundered, and leaders and soldiers are exiled. You'll see that in 2 Kings 24. And then in 587, Jerusalem is destroyed, uh, and the people are sent into exile. And if you're wondering what mood we should be in, it's Psalm 137, verse 1. Uh, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. So we're uh, in the Boney M song. It sounds quite cheerful, if uh, you know that, or your pe- Mark will remember that. Um, but uh, it's not very cheerful at all, because everything is now about as bad as it, it could be. God had promised that they would be a great nation, that they would live in the land of Canaan, that they would know his blessing, and that through them, remember, his blessing would reach the nations of the world. By the time of the exile, they're scattered and defeated. They're out of the land. The temple's been destroyed. They're cursed by God. They're ruled by a foreign king. And rather than blessing the nations, they're being mocked by the nations. Why are you following your God? So they've brought disgrace on the name of God instead of being the means by which the Lord was made known and his blessing flowed to all of the nations. So the problem of sin hasn't been solved by any human king. And you get to the end of two kings, and uh, God's promises seem further away than ever. Um, the fulfillment of them does. We're still waiting for a son of David who will reign forever. We're waiting for a, a son of God who will obey God perfectly. We're waiting for a son of Abraham through whom the promises of God will be fulfilled but none of it has happened yet and that is a good place to end for coffee let me pray father it's such a a catalog of failure as we read of kings turning away from you and having their hearts seduced after other things when we read of the people Um, turning away from you, uh, following other gods. When we read of people who don't trust you, that you're big enough and good enough to achieve your purposes. People who look to human solutions. It's such a catalogue of failure. And as we read of it in the lives of Israel and Judah, it seems so blindingly obvious that it's stupid. And yet we know that we are far too like them. And that in our own hearts too, we drift away from serving you to follow other gods. That we don't listen to your word as eagerly or as attentively as we should. And that we fail day after day to love you with all of our heart. And so as we see this low point in the people of Israel, we want to... Just end this little session by thanking you that when we were at our lowest point, when we were dead, you sent the Lord Jesus to make us alive and to forgive us and to restore us. We praise you for him. And we ask that reading of the failure of previous generations would make us more and more grateful for him. And we pray it in his name. Amen.